You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so let's uh, jump right in, right? We're, we're busy about answering that one question this morning. Why would it be to the advantage of the disciples to have the Spirit instead of Jesus' real physical presence. And so this is what the text says, starting in the latter half of verse 4, Jesus speaking to his disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so here's what we need to know, right? I think what we've seen, if you were here um, a couple of sermons ago, we were seeing a progression um, in, in the emotional state of the disciples as narrated by Jesus, right? Um, in that, uh, not too long ago, he, he comes to the disciples, he lets them know that he will be leaving them, but he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And just a few verses and chapters later, we arrive at this place where he says, let not, or he's encouraging them, uh, um, because sorrow has filled their heart. Grief has filled the hearts of the disciples in this moment. And so what is it, like what is it that's causing that sorrow, right? We already know, again, from a, 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 just a few chapters ago that part of that is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is about to leave, right? Like just imagine for a moment that you've sort of uh, you've sort of forsaken all other things in your life, your job, your income, all this other stuff, to go and follow this teacher who you believe to be the Messiah, right? The one who will come and bring into being the very kingdom of God, who will reign and rule in peace and in glory and in joy and in wonder, right? You've followed him around for the better part of three years, and now he's telling you, I'm going to a place that you can't yet come to, right? So that's, that's part of it, but here's the other part, right? Let's just read the first couple of verses from chapter 16 that we skipped over, right? Starting in verse 2, it says this, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he has offered service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And here's essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying that they will now begin to bear, right? They will now begin to bear the brunt of cultural opposition. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's sort of born that in and of himself, in that much of the complaint, much of the, the, the cultural um, disdain for, uh, for this message and for what Jesus is preaching is, is towards him himself. But what he's saying is that with me absent, there's a reality that's going to happen to you, and it's going to be so severe, in fact, right, that not only will you quite possibly, most likely, lose your life. But, it, but in losing it, it will be deemed not as a loss to the world, but as a gain. 
right? So it will not be seen as something that is unjust, right? It will be seen as something that is entirely just. People will think that by killing you, they are offering service to me. That's how dire the cultural reality is about to become for the disciples. It's about to become very uncomfortable, very socially unprofitable to be a follower of Jesus in this time, in this time and in this space. And it's into that reality, right, that Jesus says, I'm going to tell you these things in response to the fact that you have this sorrow in your heart over the reality of what's to come, that I'm leaving and that it's about to get really difficult to be my follower in the world. And his response to that is verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper or the Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So what is it that makes that comforting, right? I mean, at first glance, it's just kind of like, okay, so there's this Spirit Helper thing that's going to that's gonna come and ha- hang out, right? How is this... How is this comforting to the disciples? What is it that Jesus so confidently into their sorrow says, nevertheless, it is to your advantage that I should go away because if I go, then in comes the Spirit. Well, if again, if we have some familiarity with the, the Old Testament, then what we can know um, just by sort of a survey of many different verses, in, especially in the prophets in Isaiah and Joel and Amos and Jeremiah, right, that um, the, the Old Testament sort of points to or makes a lot of prophecies about a, a, a coming day, right? Much of it is about the promise of a Messiah, Right? And I think many of us are more familiar about that reality because we talk about that in relation to Jesus. But here's the thing, accompanying a lot of those prophecies and a lot of those promises from the Old Testament of this Messiah that would come, there are also many promises that speak of the day where because of the Messiah and because of the ushering in of God's very own kingdom right on earth, that the Spirit and the Spirit's presence would be part of what characterizes that kingdom. And so the comfort that Jesus is giving is a comfort of promises that are fulfilled, not only in Him being the Messiah, but in Him being able to usher in this kingdom and part of what characterizes that kingdom being the very presence of God in His Spirit. And what is ultimately attached to all of that is this. Right again, so if the, the, the narrative of the Old Testament surrounds the coming of the Messiah, the, the inbreaking of the Messiah's kingdom, and the presence of the Spirit in that kingdom, right? And then finally, the one thing that you always see attached to these sort of prophecies or promises of the kingdom in the Old Testament is that this kingdom would never end. Right? We read that, that scripture from Isaiah chapter 9 every Christmas, right? Of His reign and of His rule, right, in justice and peace and mercy, that, that, that reign will never end. And so here's what Jesus is comforting them with. He's saying, look, I, I truly am the Messiah, 
And by sending the Spirit, you can know with full assurance that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now and the kingdom will exist in perpetuity in spite of the fact that the cultural reality will suggest that you're going to die out pretty quick. And that's where the comfort is. That's the steel in the gut of the disciples to know that even though they approach... (laughs) any number of creative methods of being tortured and or killed. That this kingdom not only has a Messiah, that this kingdom uh, not only has come in the Messiah, but that it is continuing in and through the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit among them. Essentially, Jesus is saying that things are going to get really difficult, but I'm the Messiah. I've ushered in my kingdom. And you can have assurance of that because of the presence of the Spirit. So the Spirit is a sign, right? An assurance of the presence of the very real kingdom of God in the world. But what does the Spirit actually do, right? All we've we've seen so far is that that Jesus is going to send this Spirit. What is the Spirit actually going to do? Verses 8 through 11 say this. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And uh, we don't have time to, to sort of dive into each and every little nuance of this, but Suffice it to say, it's pretty clear from the language that that John is using, right, courtroom language, right? So what we should uh, begin to to sort of conjure up in our mind is this idea of the Spirit, right, as someone who is convicting, who is, uh, think of it like a prosecutor, right? Someone who is actively trying to bring about a conviction, right? And and we have words like like judgment and things like that that are involved in this portion of, of text as well. And yet, here's kind of where the analogy breaks down a little bit, right? And then it tells us the Spirit has come to convict us of sin, convict us of righteousness, convict us of judgment. And yet, where the analogy breaks down is this, in, that in, a, in a court of law, the prosecutor's job is to uh, accomplish a convic- conviction so that correct punishment might be meted out, Right? It's towards the end of, of, of punishment, of restoring justice through punishment. And yet when the Spirit comes because of Jesus, right, He's, he's endeavoring to uh, get us to a place of conviction, not for the sake of punishment, for the, but for the sake of freedom. And that freedom comes through, ultimately, through repentance, right? And when we go back to the original language, if you look at that word convict, there is a gracious tone Um, to the way that that word could or should be translated. And so, the Spirit points things out to us, convicts us of things in order to lead us to repentance. And Romans tells us that that's actually God's kindness towards us. But so the Spirit is going to lead us to repentance, right, in three different areas. And we'll just just walk through them uh, very, very briefly says that the Spirit will call us to repentance. The, the Spirit will convict us concerning sin. So the Spirit is going to make it very clear for us what 
is righteous and what is not righteous, right? But then he says this, concerning sin, comma, because they do not believe in me. And in this, Jesus is making reference or, or uh, bringing to light for us really the soil in which all of our sin grows, right? And it's this sin of disbelief, right? That primarily what it is that sets us apart from God, primarily what it is that keeps us from walking in the peace of God and in the righteousness of God is ultimately a disbelief in God whether it was Adam and Eve who disbelieved that what God had commanded was best, or whether it's us disbelieving that what Jesus has done is enough, so instead we try to build a long list of moral accomplishments in hopes, in hopes that He will accept us because of them. Right, so he's going to come and he's going to convict us concerning sin. Again, not just so that we sit under the shame and the guilt of sin, but so that we experience relief from the shame and the guilt of sin. Both of those are wrapped up in the ministry and in the work of the Spirit. So the first thing he calls us to repentance from is from our sin. Second thing is the Spirit calls people to repentance for false righteousness. And I know that word false is not in there, but that is what he is saying in verse 10 when he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. In that what Jesus is saying is that the righteousness that you think you have is not enough. And so I need to come and show you that and show you that real righteousness has been accomplished by me and the Spirit is going to continue that work. This is why Jesus is so often at odds with those who believe that they are righteous in his day, the Pharisees, right? You see this ongoing dialogue between, between these two parties throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And in spite of their outward righteousness, their outward appearance of righteousness, what does Jesus say? You've washed the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. And he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And so he's come to convict us. He's come to reveal to us our false sense of righteousness. In fact, there's a great example in the scriptures um, of a man who experienced this in a, in a real tangible way from the Spirit, right? I think if we, if we know any of the New Testament, we know of a, of a guy named Paul, right? And that he like wrote the majority of it. Uh, right? What, what, what happened to Paul? Paul is on his way, right? On the road to Damascus. He's about to go and persecute the church, persecute the disciples, right? So the, the real fear that the disciples have of losing their life here is being perpetrated by this man, formerly named Saul, who, who becomes named Paul, right? He's literally on the opposite side of the spectrum. And on his way there, the, 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 Jesus shows up knocks him off of his horse, says, why are you persecuting me? Turns this guy's life around. And this is what he says in Philippians 3. And if you know Paul, he was very respectable in, in the current culture. He said, and this is why he says this. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, right? So Paul says, look, if there were any, if there were any sphere, any place for having confidence in what can be accomplished in my flesh, then I would have more reason than any of you to be confident. And he lists out his accomplishments, right? But then what does he say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the work of the Spirit in Paul's life, convicting him of his false righteousness and showing him the way to true righteousness through Jesus. And then third, the Spirit calls people to repentance for their incorrect judgment, right? In that essentially what what Jesus is saying and recognizing is that our world will consistently and constantly be filled with false moral and ethical judgments. Moral and ethical judgments that our culture will hold up and say, this is the way, this is the truth, this is how things should be, this is morally right. And Jesus says, I'm the one who gets to determine that, and my spirit will ensure that that truth is made known. And my spirit will ensure that that truth is guarded and guided and protected and given to the saints. And that's why he says this, all that, uh, I'm sorry, that's why he says this, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And when he talks about the ruler of the world, that's just a, a way of saying Satan, right? And he says, so essentially what Jesus is saying is that Satan stands condemned by the work of Jesus, and so it is for any who would follow in his path. So it's in these ways, right, that the coming of the Spirit is essentially just the continuation of Jesus' ministry, right? I mean, ultimately, when we look at these three things that the Spirit will come and will do, are these not the same things that Jesus did? Did not Jesus come convicting people of their sin, right? Did, did, did He not say to the, to the woman at the well, you know, go, go and sin no more? Did He not come and tell the righteous of His day, your righteousness isn't as righteous as you think it is? That's why you need me? Didn't Jesus come and say, hey, you, you say that these things are right, but they're not. This is what is. The ministry of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, is a continuation of Jesus' ministry, not the initiation of a new ministry. And this is a, a really cool thing. We don't, we don't get to dive into all the nuance of it, but essentially what we see here, right? What we see here is Father, Son, and Spirit all operating together in a perfect, wonderful, glorious unity. Right? In that 
The Father sends the Son. The Son is obedient to the Father. The Spirit comes and extends the work of the Son, right, to the glory of the Father and the Son, right? You, what you see here is an incredible unity in terms of purpose and desire and what it is that will come to pass, and each of them are playing their role within that story. It's amazing. That's where we get those words, God in three, three persons, blessed Trinity. Mm. So, the Spirit comes as an assurance of the present and the coming kingdom of God. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And finally, He guides us into all the truth. This is what verse 12 says. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So finally, the Spirit guides us into all the truth. All the truth, right? Now, if you remember just a couple chapters ago, right, what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And here's the thing, he didn't qualify those statements in any way, did he, right? He didn't say, I'm some of the truth, I'm part of the truth, I'm most of the truth, I'm as much as you need to know about the truth. No, he said, I am the truth. So when Jesus says that the Spirit, one, is a spirit of truth, but also one who will guide us into all truth, what he's telling us is that the Spirit is going to guide us into a fuller and more deeper understanding of Jesus. Right? So the Spirit cannot and will not lead us to anything besides Jesus, the truth. The locus, right? The focus of the truth is Jesus. So that's where the Spirit is taking us. And that's important for us to know. It's important for us to know, right? Because in an age where we have elevated feeling, right? In that if it feels right, it is right, right? Where we get that kind of relativism, this is important because I think sometimes that relativism and that elevation of emotion and feeling creeps its way into the church through a misunderstanding of the work of the Spirit. Because we take that feeling and we say to ourselves, well, I, I think the Spirit is just leading me here. And here's the thing, that's not always entirely wrong. But if it leads us to anywhere outside of Jesus, if it leads us to anywhere outside of the truth that is both wrapped up in and has been shown through Jesus, then that's not the Spirit, that's you. And discerning those, discerning those two things is going to be really important because again, God, God the Father, through the Son, operating in the Spirit, wants to lead us to repentance so that what? So that we sit under shame and guilt? No, so that we experience life in His name, which is devoid of shame and guilt. 
So the Spirit leads us into all the truth. And then it says this, that He will declare to you the things that are to come, right? And again, there's a way that this can be taken and twisted and used to sort of look at God as, as that magic eight ball, you know, that you shake and maybe it'll just give me the right answer, right? That somehow, because we have the Spirit, there's a mystical element involved. And here's the thing, the Spirit does not operate in a realm of mysticism. He's leading us into all of the truth. And so when he says that he's going to declare to us the things that are to come, what is he declaring to us? He's declaring to us the coming kingdom. He's declaring to us that Jesus does, in fact, reign and rule. He's declaring to us that this kingdom will never end. He's declaring to us consistently, constantly, our reality so that when we are confronted with what we currently see, We can withstand the difficulties that are in front of us. And specifically for the disciples in this this portion of text, he's, he's saying, look, I know you don't understand how all of this is going to work out, but the Spirit is going to lead you into all of the things that are to come, the birth of the church, the expansion of the church, the ministry of the gospel that starts in just this little tiny, tiny backwoods, middle-of-nowhere place, and ends up across the ends of the earth. And then finally it says this, the Spirit will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies Jesus always. He is not at odds with or in competition with Jesus. He glorifies Jesus always. Always. So why does all this matter, right? Like much of what we've talked about essentially is just, it's theology, right? It's like, it's what we should think about God, what we should believe about God, what we should believe about the Spirit and how He relates to Jesus and how He belongs to this Trinity that forms one God in three persons, right? And while all those things are are good to know, right? What does it matter, not only for the disciples in the text, but for us as disciples now? I think we've, we've seen, if we could sort of bring everything down to just a couple of sentences. Here's what we've seen thus far, right? The Spirit characterizes the age of the kingdom, which gives us hope. Right? It means that God's kingdom is, is still being built. God's kingdom continues to march forward. As, as the New Testament would tell us, he leads us in triumphal procession. So the church is always marching towards victory, no matter how, how many statistics would say something to the contrary. So we have hope. But then the Spirit draws people into that kingdom by leading them to repentance, right? He draws people into the kingdom by helping them to acknowledge their sin, their false righteousness, and their imperfect judgments, and instead finding Jesus' perfection, Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus' good judgment over us, which is forgiven. He leads us into holiness. And then finally, the, the Spirit guides and instructs His people, God's people, the church, in all the truth as revealed not only in but by Jesus, right? So we have help. 
Right, so, so with the Spirit, we have hope, we have holiness, and we have help. Those are, those are the three things, essentially, if we could just boil it down to three words, that's what we have in the Spirit. And it's as we experience this hope, and it's as we grow in this holiness, that we accomplish what Jesus has tasked us with doing by the Spirit's help. You see, let me just jump back a, a, a little bit further than where we went. All right, just two verses in the chapter preceding. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You see, the task that he's given the disciples, the task that, they, that not only leads them to, to a place of fear, but will ultimately lead them to um, great discomfort in the body, is the same task that, that you and I have been given as, as his disciples. Right? That if the Holy Spirit has come, the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father has come to bear witness, and this, that Spirit now indwells you and me, the, the people through whom God would reveal Himself, then surely, and surely it's going to require us at some point to bear witness to Him. And so the stakes, the stakes for them were high. The stakes for us are just as high. In that the mission of God in Montrose, in Houston, and in the world is what's at stake for the church, for the people of God. Make no mistake, that's a huge task. But what we have in the Spirit and what Jesus is speaking to his disciples then and speaking to us now is a confidence in which we can undertake a seemingly impossible task. We can take this, so I don't care how many times you've seen Tom Cruise like do the impossible and somehow end up with mission accomplished, right? Like this is the mission impossible. What Jesus has asked of his disciples here and what Jesus is asking of us now is the mission impossible. And yet Jesus tells us that with the Spirit, it becomes possible for us, right? The cultural outlook for the disciples here was getting increasingly dire. It's getting increasingly dire for us too, not nearly close to where they are yet, although there are parts of the world where Christians do experience that reality for whom we should be in regular prayer for. But here's the thing, you know, we... It's just amazing that, one, we have Jesus' own words for us to read and to take in and to know that the Spirit is here to be our hope, to be our holiness, to be our help, to guide us in all of this. But you know what's also amazing? Is that we've got 2,000 years of empirical data by which we can see that literally the most untenable message in, the, in, in all of human history, right, has not only survived, 
but it's thrived and it's flourished to become something that is believed across cultures, across boundaries, across ethnicities, people groups, across the world for the better part of 2,000 years, in spite of the fact that its leader was murdered at 33 years old and his best charges were some uneducated, illiterate fishermen who had not only no standing in their own country, but whose country had no standing in the global, in the, in the global power structure. They were currently under Roman rule. And you know what the secret was? You know what the, the, the message was? Oh, hey, by the way, um, a, a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter died on a Roman cross as a criminal, um, and, and because he was the Son of God, um, he actually took upon himself the weight of our sin for us. And when we believe in him, not only um, will we experience life now in his name, but we'll experience eternal life in the future. Like, let's just be honest, right? Like, I, probably many of us have been sitting in church for a while, but that is ridiculous on its face, isn't it? I mean, you tell me there's life on Mars, you know, I'm like, hey, maybe there's aliens out there. Like, that's literally more plausible to most people. And yet, here's the reality. Because the Spirit works, and because the Spirit is our hope and our help, and our holiness, that message becomes wisdom to the people of God, where it used to be foolishness. This is what the Spirit does, and so if we want revival in Houston, we need the Spirit to empower us to speak and for the Spirit to convict. You see, it's the Spirit's work. So, so this is why when God does things like revival, when God brings people to faith, whether it's at Sojourn Montrose or any number of other churches across the world, it's not about that church. It's the work of the Spirit that Jesus has sent for us, and that's why it's to our advantage that we have the Spirit with us here and now. And so my prayer, my prayer for us this morning is quite simple, right? It's that it's that we would step into this reality that Jesus tells us is our reality, that we have the Spirit, that we have all the hope, all the holiness, and all the help that we need, that we'll be given all of that. That's the work of the Spirit to do, and that when we walk in those things, that people will be convicted of sin of righteousness and judgment, and then they will be brought to repentance and they will experience life in His name, a life in the Spirit. And so let's pray to that end this morning.